I have a secret. I wore the wrong foundation for years. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews and 50 shades of flawless coverage, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. It's tough buying foundation online, but their Power Match quiz matched me perfectly. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your shade free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome to a very special episode of the Nature Podcast. It is, in fact, our 500th show. And that's not even including all the back chats, nature features and other podcast extras. To celebrate our half millennium, we bring you, as ever, three stories looking at the latest and greatest research. Floating cities, malaria-free mosquitoes and using evolution to inspire aircraft design. Plus, we have a wrap-up of this year's Nobels in the news chat. But that's not all. We also have a head-scratchingly hard quiz and a very special guest whose voice might be familiar. I'm Sharmini Bundell. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Hello, Kerry Smith. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. Where have you been in the last few weeks, months? Thank you, Adam Levy. I have been editing features for the print magazine and the website, um, not entirely to the exclusion of appearing on the podcast that one time. Yes, you did come back that one time almost immediately after you left. I couldn't stay away. This being the 500th episode, it's especially fitting for you to be here, as I think you, you probably were on more episodes than anyone else I can think of. It seems, I have no way of backing up this assertion, but that seems very likely. Yeah. How, how many hundreds of podcast episodes do you think you might have hosted? Oh my gosh, um, into the hundreds easily. Well, thank you for joining us for just one more in that plethora of podcasts that you've hosted in the past. Would you like to introduce our first piece? I would love to. First up this week, reporter Jeff Marsh has been taking a look at a whole new way to build cities. Science journalist Emma Maris recently embarked upon a tropical writing mission to the lush lagoons of French Polynesia's Tahiti. There's a lot of hype about Tahiti being paradise, and I was, I was ready to be a sceptic, but it is paradise. <laughs> I loved it. Emma travelled to this scenic Pacific archipelago to hear about bold plans to build the first permanent floating artificial island. So seasteading started as this sort of theoretical idea about how you could start your own country by kind of plunking it in the middle of the ocean. Um, and then you could make up all your own rules about how to run things. And it was very much a sort of a political idea about starting afresh with how to govern. And then over time, it's become, as it sort of walked closer and closer to reality, it's expanded out to also be a concept about sustainable technologies and how, how do you actually build a floating island and become a lot more uh, about sort of science and tech along the way. This is the endeavour of the not-for-profit Seasteading Institute based in California. And pioneering this technology to allow societies on the high seas is crucial, according to self-acclaimed sea evangelist Joe Quirk. Two of the biggest problems in the world are uh, sea level change and the lack of innovation in governance. 
And seasteading solves both these problems at the same time. Joe is president of the Seasteading Institute and co-founder and managing director of their for-profit spin-off, Blue Frontiers. He sees lots of potential for what he calls blue technology, the innovative new tech that will allow societies to thrive at sea. Well, we're going to concentrate blue technology all in one floating incubation hub so we can accelerate the, the technologies for sustainable floating cities on the future. And once you uh, provide this platform uh, for scientists, they reach out to you with their own ideas. Sometimes I look at everything we're doing and it's like the space station. That's Mark Collins, a former minister from the government of French Polynesia and also an ambassador to the Seasteading Institute and co-founder of Blue Frontiers. He's a native Polynesian and has played a key role in securing a formal agreement for the project with the French Polynesian government. Like Joe, he's a passionate believer in the potential of seasteading. Two-thirds of the planet are covered by water, and uh, we're right now spending billions and billions of dollars to explore you know, space and living on Mars and you know, doing new stations on the moon, when two-thirds of the planet are still uninhabitable for, for humans. So I think we should uh, be looking at the oceans. These guys are uh, not, you know, they're nothing if not enthusiastic, and they seem to be wanting to include as many cool technologies and approaches and sort of trendy things as possible in this project. So they, there's a, they're, they're, they're piling a lot of different angles onto this kind of floating island idea. The list of scientific aims made by Joe and Mark are lofty and grand, and we don't have time to look into all of them properly here. But as Joe predicted, scientists are taking interest. Take Neil Davies, for example. He's involved in coral reef research and can see real advantages to a permanent in-situ station rather than a moving research vessel. The ships are very powerful, but they tend to move. And so what they do less well is build up a picture of how a single part of the ocean might be changing over a long period of time. No one's going to have a ship and then just say, well, let's just moor it off the coast and leave it there for 20 years. <laughs> That's not what happens. So a fixed floating platform on a reef is an attractive concept to researchers like Neil, and it could open up entirely new avenues of research. It's a challenge for sure, but if they're able to build here a prototype and drive the cost down of being able to work in situ in a marine environment, that is incredibly interesting. And we're already doing some of this. We have some small platforms that are being built. The French research teams have a project uh, underway here and uh, through the National Science Foundation of the US we have a small platform as well going out on the reef because the science of coral reefs at least is, is driving this need to be out on the reef and to be able to do some sustained manipulations uh, of relatively large areas in situ to see how the natural system is going to respond. Not just one coral in an aquarium but the natural community of corals and algae and fish and everything else that, that lives on, in, a, in a reef, which is one of the, obviously one of the most diverse and complex systems on Earth. So certain areas of science could benefit from floating platforms like these. And there's hope that the technological challenges of forming a sustainable artificial island would spark interesting new ideas. But research is far from Seasteader's only motivation. These platforms are potentially going to be a necessity for climate migrants. Indeed, the inhabitants of French Polynesia may be forced off their natural islands by rising sea levels. It really is the main driver for the support that we're getting from, from the administration here, from the government. We have some very serious studies from the CNRS, so the French Research Institute, saying that by 2100, uh, there would be 30% uh, of the islands of, of French Polynesia that would be submerged. 
So having this ability to say, look, we have technology, and obviously our goal as Blue Frontiers and CSAN is to lower the cost of these structures to the point where they become cheaper, really, than, than beachfront real estate. It literally could be hope for, for some of these island nations that are saying they, they would literally lose their sovereignty and, uh, and their people. Neil told me that scientists like him are ready to jump on board if and when seasteading comes to fruition. But for people like Joe, this is just the start of something much bigger. Certainly by 2050, I think today's toddlers will be in their early 30s and they'll wonder why the rest of us lived in such um, unsustainable and old-fashioned monopoly governments when they live on highly sustainable societies um, on the oceans. And they will have a variety of governance options to choose among. Here's Emma for a final word of caution against immediately abandoning your terrestrial dwellings. The thing to remember is that so far everything is on paper, right? These are exciting ideas and it's exciting to think about and there's a lot of potential here. But so far what we have is we have a beautiful sparkling lagoon and we have architectural drawings. You know, they haven't broken ground yet, or in this case, broken sea. Uh, so we've got to uh, realize that it's at early, early days. That was journalist Emma Maris speaking with Jeff Marsh. You also heard from UC Berkeley biologist Neil Davies and seasteaders Joe Quirk and Mark Collins. To find out more about seasteading, read Emma's feature in this week's Nature. To celebrate our 500th episode, I've actually come up with a quiz on the theme of the number 500, especially for you, Carrie Smith. Just for me, Sharmini Bundell. Well, the people listening at home can also join in. We're going to be starting, as is tradition, with round one. Starting easy. What is the Roman numeral for 500? Ooh. Now, at the end of every BBC programme, they put the copyright in and they put the date in Roman numerals. And it says MCM. Does that tell us anything? No? C is 100? So if it's not C, then maybe it is L or D. I reckon L is 50 and D is 500. One point for Kerry Smith. D is 500 and L is 50. Just one point for each question. That is so miserly. Yeah, we're not. I'm not even counting the points. The points will get you nothing. There are no prizes. I'll I'm just sorry. make a note of them here. Okay, next question. Who was the ruler of England 500 years ago in the year 1517? Oh, my goodness. That's a really tricky one. Because there are so many kings with the same name. It's probably one of them. It was probably not the latest of the Henrys. But my, my odds are good if it's a Henry of some description. Let's go with um, Henry the Fourth. You're way too early. It is the eighth. Is it the eighth? It is the famous Henry the Eighth. Henry was a good choice. There were a lot of Henrys in England. Okay, last question is multiple choice in this round. What does the HTTP status code 500 signify? Don't worry, it's multiple choice. Okay, it is either A, internal server error, B, not found, or C, multiple choices. I see what you've done there. Yeah. But I don't think it can be the nested option. That's just far too neat. Let's go for the first one, internal server error. That is correct. 500 yes. is internal server error. That was an amazing first round there from Kerry Smith, apart from English royalty, of course. There will be another chance later in the show to uh, get even more meaningless points. Uh, now, though, we're going to go back to the science. Uh, Ewan Calloway's been taking a look at two new approaches to fight back against the world's deadliest animal. Each year, malaria kills hundreds of thousands of people, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. 
Going after the mosquitoes that transmit the malaria parasite is one of the best ways to combat the disease. Insecticide-treated bed nets have helped cut malaria deaths by nearly half since 2000. But researchers are keen to develop new weapons against malaria that don't need constant use to work. One approach is to release genetically modified mosquitoes into the wild. George Demopoulos at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, tested one kind of GM mosquito in his lab and found some pretty promising results. I called him up to find out more. So the, the goal here is to spread a mosquito that is incapable of transmitting the disease. The goal is not to eliminate the mosquito, which is something that other transgenic approaches has focused on. So here you're looking at the possibility of releasing GM mosquitoes that won't transmit malaria. But what kind of genetic modification are we actually talking about? We have not introduced any foreign genes into the genome of these genetically modified mosquitoes. We have only changed its own genes a little bit. This genetic change that you've made to the mosquitoes, what does it do? Well, it turns on the mosquito's immune response against the malaria parasite at an earlier stage after the mosquito has ingested the blood that contains the parasite. You've basically genetically modified mosquitoes so they can't become infected with the malaria parasite? Is that the idea? That's the idea, exactly. That sounds, I mean, that, sound, that sounds great. Presumably you're doing this work in, in the laboratory. Is there reason to think that these genetically modified mosquitoes that your, your lab made, they would, uh, how would they fare in the wild where malaria spreads? Uh, so we have spent uh, significant time on focusing on how fit these genetically modified mosquitoes are and how competitive they are. And we couldn't notice any significant difference in their fitness compared to the wild mosquito. And does that mean it's if you released one of these genetically modified mosquitoes or a number of them in the population, would they have success in spreading and in, in mating with unmodified uh, mosquitoes and having offspring that, that have this genetic change? So that was the highlight of our recent study uh, where we showed that in a cage population, starting off with an equal number of wild-type mosquitoes and genetically modified mosquitoes, these genetically modified mosquitoes would prevail already after one generation, and that would persist over 10 generations. Then we decided to look into why that is happening, and we realized that it related to mating. We showed that the genetically modified males preferred to mate with wild-type females, we also showed a weaker preference of wild-type males uh, towards genetically modified females. So this pattern of mate preference would favor the spread of the transgene. So that would hopefully mean that malaria resistance spreads through wild mosquitoes, right? That's right. And what we showed in our study was that this mate preference related to a change in the mosquito microbiota. And what we think this change in microbiota is doing, it is making the mosquito smell somewhat differently. And this smell, if you want, is important for attraction during mate choice. How 
do you see this strategy fitting in with everything else that people are, are talking about to try and try and control malaria? None of the existing or future malaria control strategies will represent the silver bullet for malaria control. Malaria is not going to become eliminated using one single strategy, but we can only achieve that elimination through intelligent combination of multiple strategies. That was George Demopoulos at Johns Hopkins University. And there are already multiple strategies to fight malaria using genetics. In fact, a team led by George's colleague, Marcelo Jacobs Lorena, just published his own approach. Instead of altering the genomes of mosquitoes, they inserted anti-malaria genes into bacteria that can live inside the mosquito's guts, called serratia. These bacteria and their anti-malaria genes spread from parent to offspring. And Marcelo told me... It proved to be very effective. So the the genetically modified serratia were able to inhibit parasite development by more than 90%. These two papers are part of a bigger push to use genetic modifications to fight malaria. Malaria has been killing humans for tens of thousands of years. Is the end finally in sight? Marcelo says that new approaches like the ones that he and George are developing might mean we are on the brink of defeating this disease once and for all. We have made quite a substantial progress in the last decade or so. The number of cases and number of deaths have dropped significantly. And I am optimistic that if we can implement those new tools that are being devised, we will be able to contain the disease and eventually eradicate. That was Marcelo Jacobs-Lorena and George Demopoulos speaking with reporter Ewan Calloway. Both their studies are out in Science. Give them a read at sciencemag.org. Stay tuned for the news chat where we'll be giving you the lowdown on this year's Nobel Prizes. But now it's time for this week's research highlights. You may have noticed the exceptionally high quality of puns in the research highlights in recent weeks. That's thanks to the expert writing of Nature's very own Associate Research Highlights editor, Emily Bannum. And now she joins us in the studio to bring us two of the best bits of research from the last week. They say rules are made to be broken but I bet you wouldn't dare to break the second law of photochemistry. This law says that in light-driven chemical reactions, one photon reacts with one molecule. But now, a team of photon-fixated physicists have shone a light on a potential loophole. They believe that a photon could react with multiple molecules if the light is trapped by mirrors. No, not in your fairground funhouse mirror room. This is an optical cavity where a photon would bounce around, triggering reactions with all the molecules inside. This principle could illuminate new ways to harness solar energy. Enlighten yourself over at Physical Review Letters. Now for adventures on the high seas and the tsunami that has made waves among hundreds of marine critters. A deluge of debris from the 2011 tsunami in Japan has been harbouring stowaways, Nearly 300 marine species were found clinging to the wreckage of boats and buoys that had floated across the Pacific Ocean to the coast of North America. One of the castaways, a barred knife-jaw fish, survived two years at sea after commandeering an unmanned fishing boat. 
and even six years after the big wave, an object washed up carrying sea anemones and barnacles. So far, however, the daring drifters haven't successfully settled into their new ports. For more on this, paddle over to science. Okay, it's now time for the second round of our 500-themed quiz. Are you excited, Carrie Smith? So excited! This round is called Bigger or Smaller? I'm smaller. You're smaller than many things, but in this quiz, these things are either bigger or smaller than 500 of a particular unit. First question, a bit biological here. A human hair, is it bigger or smaller in width than 500 micrometres? I reckon it's... In the hundreds, but not 500. It's smaller. You're correct. It's usually about 100, but definitely less than 200. Okay, we're going to go a little bit bigger now. Quite a lot bigger. The world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa. Do you think it's taller or shorter than 500 metres? 500 metres? Half a kilometre? I can imagine how long it takes to walk that far. I I can almost not conceptualise how it could be taller than 500, but it is pretty tall. It's taller, bigger. It is. It is. No, it isn't. 828 metres. Oh, my God. We're going even bigger. We're going, we're going into space now. The distance from the Earth to the Sun, it's known as one astronomical unit, but is it more or less than 500 million kilometres? Ah, you know, I was having trouble conceptualising that building. Scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with that now, but I definitely can't conceptualise one astronomical unit. 500 million kilometres. No, it's not that far. Correct. Smaller. It's only 150 million kilometres. A short walk. That was actually very impressive, Carrie. I think you did better than I would have done. We are almost halfway through the 500 theme quiz. Um, There will be more questions later, but now it's time to hand over to reporter Lizzie Gibney, who's been finding out how supercomputers are helping aircraft wing design reach new heights. The body of every living creature has been meticulously honed by natural selection. Take a bird's wing. Any tiny change that gives a bird an advantage, for example, better lift or lower weight, is likely to propagate in successive generations. And over time, this process optimises the wing's structure. Human designers, on the other hand, don't have the luxury of millions of years, but they can still take a leaf out of nature's book by creating computer-based methods of optimization. Neil Zoe and his colleagues have used a supercomputer to calculate the best possible internal structure for an aircraft wing, one that's still stiff but also as light as possible. Their methods mirror evolution, and their radical new wing design has some surprising parallels with nature. To find out more, I gave Nils a call and started by asking him what techniques engineers had to rely on when they first started out designing wings. First of all, it's always been a complicated matter of doing this. In the early years, it was a lot of trial and error. So producing real-life replicas and testing them in situation. And then uh, recently, or actually for the past 50 years, they have been using more and more computational methods to do the design and analysis. And people have recently started to use optimization programs a bit like yours. Um, but just talk me through generally how they're applied and how they come into the design process. 
Well, they've been using them quite heavily, I would say, for the past 20 years or so. So that would be like, if you think of, you take out one rib supporting structure, which is a slender 2D type structure that you have at the leading and trailing edge of the wings, and then they would have applied the optimization scheme to figure out the optimal material distribution within that rib alone, uh, based on the loading conditions from the aerodynamics. And so you wanted to do something similar, but not for individual components, but for the wing as a whole. Yes, which means that you will get the interplay of all different components at once. And that will, of course, or of course, we have shown that that leads to novel designs, which you could not have obtained by doing this single component one at a time analysis. And talk me through how this optimization works then. What constraints are you working within? Presumably, um, you know, planes can only fly with certain shaped wings, for instance. What, what are you factoring into your, to your equations? So we start out with an airfoil, which has been optimized for minimum drag and lift, good lift properties. We fix the outer skin of the, of the whole wing structure, and then we remove everything from the inside. We then ask every point in space if it should be material or void, such that we will end up with a structure that is as stiff as possible. And here stiff, I mean a structure that produces the least deformations when subjected to the loads. But then the idea is also to be as light as possible. Of course. So the constraint is that it should be, of course, be able to withstand the loading, but it should also minimize the material used for producing it. And so how does your version of optimization work then? Is it just a kind of, you know, supercharged trial and error? No, it's definitely not trial and error. It's deterministic and based on, a, on, on, a, on rigorous mathematics. So what we do is the whole 3D domain is uh, cut into smaller voxels. And here voxel, you can think of voxels like a 3D version of a pixel or very small Lego bricks. Each of these voxels, and in this example we have more than a billion of them, is then given a design variable. Over an iterative process we then repeatedly perform a structural analysis, so we figure out where in the internal structure is the material heavily loaded. If it's heavily loaded, there should be more material. If it's not carrying any load, we can remove material. And through a couple of hundred iterations, we end up with a final design. And so your final design is as stiff as possible, but as light as possible. Exactly. And were you surprised by um, what your algorithm produced in terms of what the inside of this wing looked like? Very much so. So the designs that we observed from our optimization method are very organic looking, meaning that there are not that many straight lines. Everything is curved and have extreme amount of similarities to to, for example, bird bone structures. So you have these components that fan out in the, for example, in the flap regions, and they are very similar to how feathers are situated on bird bones. And what difference does it make in terms of the, the overall weight of the wing? Well, the difference it makes, it means that we can obtain the same stiffness properties as our, our conventional aircraft wing structures have, but using less material which both re reduces fuel consumption and the material used for constructing the structure. And how practical is it to be able to apply your process to design generally in, in industry? So the approach itself is highly applicable, but if you look at our example, it's a 30-metre wing structure, which with the details we have and the complex geometries, it would have to be 3D printed. 
Currently, there do not exist large metal 3D printers. So what you can use it for right now is that you can look at our designs and like what we did, pick out some of the main trends in the design and use that in the next generation of aircrafts. What other kind of structures can you um, use this optimization program to improve? We can, of course, use it to look at high-rise buildings, bridges, power masts and, and other complex structures like that. Let's say that we were to build a high-rise building in a site where earthquakes are prone to happen. Then you need to design this structure such that it can withstand the dynamics of the earthquake while maintaining a stiffness constraint. So to minimize the impact of the earthquake, and still maintaining structural integrity. So if we have these structures that look a bit like bird bones, but kind of wing bones in the in the aeroplane wing, does that mean that it's a kind of similar process going on, that this optimization is in some way a bit like natural selection? Very much so. I mean, nature has been optimizing itself using trial and error, meaning it has constructed a design, the species have been out flying, and then the next generation will have improved on that. That's exactly what we're doing. We come up with an initial design, in this case nothing, and then we improve on that iteratively. So it has not just many, the result has many similarities to nature, but the process itself has equally many similarities to nature's own evolution. That was Niels O at the Technical University of Denmark talking to Lizzie Gibney about his paper. You can peruse it at nature.com forward slash nature, along with the news and views article. It's almost time for this week's Nobel's News Chat, but before we get to that, I can see that Sharmini is practically bursting with yet more 500-themed questions that she is desperate to ask Kerry. Go ahead, Sharmini. I am indeed. There's only two in this round, and it's about two famous scientists from 500 years ago in the 1500s. Um, I'm going to give you a fact about them, and I'm also going to give you five words that are associated with them but you can jump in at any time if you think you know who it is I'm talking about. First, name this person who died in 1519. Your five words are anatomy, flight... Leonardo da Vinci. Correct. (laughs) You look so smug. I mean, I only know two scientists, really, from about this time period, so... Oh, I wonder if the other one is the other one that you know. Could be. Okay, name this person who died in 1543 shortly after publishing a revolutionary book. Copernicus. (laughs) I didn't even get the chance to give you my words. It's my other favourite scientist from the early 1500s. That round was too easy. I'm I'm disappointed. You just wait for round four. I know I haven't been answering so far, but I'd just like to let you both know that in my head, I've got 100%, right? Well done. Time now for this week's news chat, and it's a special news chat because, of course, this week was the week of the Nobel Prizes. To break it down for us, we have Richard Van Norden in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. Now, first up, there have been a few things which have changed, but notably the prize money changed this year. Yeah, it's gone up to 9 million Swedish kroner, up from 8 million last year, 1.1 million dollars, that is, so more money for the winners. But lots of things haven't changed about the Nobel Prizes, as you say, and... Yes, the prize this year went to nine men, which continues the pattern of men overwhelmingly being awarded Nobels. Uh, And uh, there's a lot of bald heads on display in our shots (laughs) of the Nobel winners this year. Working out the probability of picking nine men at random from the general population, it's about one in 512. But but that wasn't actually the only unusually high representation in this year's Nobels. There were were a lot 
of Americans, I think seven out of nine. Yeah, exactly. So the uh, the Physiology and Medicine Prize, which was announced first this week, went to three Americans, Jeffrey Hall and Michael Rosbash at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, and Michael Young at Rockefeller University in New York City. I don't think anyone can argue with the prize they got, which was for uh, unpicking the workings of the circadian clock, the daily rhythms of our cells. Uh, So what they did in the 1980s, working in fruit flies, a great example of how fruit fly research uh, can be so useful and can lead to unexpected discoveries, they found a gene that encodes a protein that builds up each night and is broken down the following day. And that was one of the first indications that there are such genes and proteins, turns out to be in all of our cells. And nowadays, you know, we know that the links between these internal clocks and our our health are so pervasive that some people say, you know, medical schools should focus more on chronobiology, the idea that we, that different cells, different parts of metabolism peak and trough at different times during the day and night. How did the winners of this prize react to their win? Were they they surprised? Well, uh, they're usually stunned and these ones were stunned too. Uh, Young said, uh, he said, I'd go and pick up my shoes and I realised I need my socks. Then I realised I need to put my pants on first. Great quote. And uh, Rosbash was silent and then said, are you kidding me? Well, that prize may have been surprising, at least to the winners. One prize which was perhaps one of the least surprising in recent memory was the prize awarded for physics this year, which went to LIGO. Everyone was expecting this one and every reporter had already written their story. It went to Ray Weiss, Kip Thorne and Barry Barish for their work on LIGO, the American observatory which detected gravitational waves, uh, which vindicated um, the predictions that gravitational waves exist, made by Albert Einstein all the way back in 1916. It essentially uh, follows from his theory of relativity and also essentially opened up a new way to listen Uh, to the universe because these gravitational waves, these ripples in space-time are emitted by violent cataclysmic events like colliding black holes or colliding neutron stars. Um, And now uh, using detectors such as that LIGO, we can listen to these, essentially these vibrations in space-time coming out and, and hitting us at Earth. Of course, a project like LIGO actually involves hundreds of people. Is it, is it difficult in these cases to pick just three names? Yes. Well, uh, Weiss himself said that he viewed it more as a thing that encompassed the work of about a thousand people. Um, and the breakthrough prize, uh, these uh, larger $3 million prizes that are awarded every year, that's already gone to the LIGO team. And it went to all of the people on the LIGO team. Um So there's definitely an argument here that this exposes the shortcomings of the Nobel. Alfred Nobel's will says that the prize can only be awarded to no more than three people. And the committee have rigidly stuck uh, to that. So um, many people maybe could have got this prize. But it was also the case perhaps for the Higgs boson and for many other prizes. Um, In this prize in particular... Uh, there were three main co-founders of LIGO, Weiss, Thorne and Ronald Draver. But unfortunately, Draver died on 7th of March this year. And I'm sure he would have received the Nobel had he been alive. You mentioned that a lot of reporters had their stories ready, but credit should go to our reporter, Davide Castelvecchi, who had his story ready this time last year because there was a possibility they might sneak in last year. Yeah, many people thought they would win last year because the detector picked up these gravitational ripples from black holes in September 2015. It wasn't publicly announced until February 2016. 
Um, but there was still time from then until uh, October for the Nobel Committee to recognize it. But they decided to wait a year. And since then, uh, we've now seen four uh, gravitational wave detections, uh, three from LIGO and the fourth one with LIGO and with Virgo, a European detector. And we are all excitedly awaiting rumors of another type of gravitational wave detection, which it's rumored will have been seen from colliding neutron stars, not black holes. And that one's exciting because telescopes are rumored to have seen the radiation coming out of that collision as well. So you're seeing it in kind of multi-modes, not just listening to the waves, but seeing the radiation as well. That is widely rumored. And indeed, uh, Ray Weiss himself may have, have let slip that it's happened because in his press briefing, he said, well, we've seen... Uh, uh, we've seen black holes and we've seen neutron stars and we're looking for some other things. But it hasn't been announced yet. Uh, it's known that telescopes have been looking at something. Uh, so we're all waiting for that to happen. So watch this space, uh, I say, on that one. Let's move on now to the last three of our nine men. Uh, th- these three won the Chemistry Nobel Prize, which at the time of recording was just announced, uh, I guess, about an hour ago. Yes, I've got no exciting quotes from the winners for this one because I've just heard the news. Uh, But no doubt if you check our website, all the details will be there. But uh, it's gone to something quite familiar for cryo-electron microscopy, uh, which is a way of deducing the structures of proteins and biomolecules at high resolution. Um, But they're frozen uh, mid-movement inside a, a solution of vitrified water, which is kind of like water if it's made into glass. Um, and that means that you can capture pictures of proteins that you couldn't perhaps get with X-ray crystallography, which is an older method for getting pictures. X-ray crystallography, you fire X-rays. It's been the workhorse of uh, protein scientists. It's been involved in perhaps 20 Nobel Prizes, this is the new movement. Labs are racing to adopt this frozen cryo-electron microscopy technique. And the prize went to Jacques Dubochet, Joachim Frank and Richard Henderson, who essentially, in different ways, developed this technique. Was this a surprise win? It doesn't sound necessarily like an obvious choice for chemistry. Well, I have sympathies with chemistry. I did chemistry and I think this is a solidly chemical technique. You are getting the atomic molecular structure Uh, of biomolecules, and that is chemical biology, really, Um, because you are seeing down to the details of atoms and molecules how, uh, you know, the Zika virus or uh, protein complexes work and, and where things dock, and that is essentially the chemistry of biomolecules. Of course, before every prize, we try to predict what the prize might go to. Was this in our short list of things that chemistry might be awarded to? It's definitely been up there. And our reporter, Ewan Calloway, actually wrote a big news feature two years ago uh, entitled The Revolution Will Not Be Crystallised, in which he explained all about cryo-EM and how it was taking over labs. So I think everyone knows it's it's been transformative. Um, We're still waiting for a Nobel Prize for lithium-ion batteries. No Nobel Prize this year for CRISPR gene editing, which many had expected might come in chemistry or physiology and medicine. Uh, So those are going to remain on people's lists next year. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. To find out more about the Nobel Prizes, especially chemistry, where we guarantee we will have quotes, uh, do check nature.com forward slash news for our news stories. That's almost it for this week's show, but Kerry, we can't let you leave us without one final quiz question. How can there be more questions? It's maths. Oh, God. This is going to be tough as well. It's going to be really tough. I'm ready. What is 22.36 times 22.36? I just think if, if there was like a 
theme for this episode that I could riff off or like something to make this answer obvious. I'd just be doing so much better than I currently am. I mean, 500? Mm, technically, it's 499.9696. I rounded up. You were, Okay, you're not, you're pretty close. Kerry Smith, you are the quiz winner. I actually knew the answer to that one as well. Fact check. Can we share the prize? You can both have a 50% share of the imaginary prize. And if any of our listeners did as well as Adam imagines that he did, you can get in touch to let us know and maybe claim your share of the prize. You can reach us by email, podcast at nature.com or on Twitter at nature podcast or get in touch with us directly. I'm at Espandel. I'm at Climate Adam. And I'm at Minnie Kerry. That's all we have time for for this week's show. But we're also releasing a special episode that looks back at some of our favourite nature podcast pieces of all time. It'll be a bumper compilation episode out later this week. Until then, I'm Adam Levy. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>